My name is Catherine Ann Byam, and I'm the host of Where Ideas Launch, the podcast for the sustainable innovator. COP26 is a moment in time that we will remember as either the time that we turned the world around for the good, or the moment, the last chance that we had to make a difference. COP26 has four goals. Secure global net zero by mid-century and keep 1.5 degrees within reach. Adapt to protect communities and natural habitats. Mobilize finance and work together to deliver. Let's see what the initiatives of COP26 will have in store for all of us. Today, my guest is Tillman Bala. Before joining Systemic, Tillman worked with EY, Sustainability Consulting and Auditing, working for several global leading corporations, smaller companies, and the German government to support better transparency and trust in sustainability reporting. Previously, he worked at Volkswagen Corporate Foresight, where he developed a master's thesis on autonomous mobility for his master's degree. He also had experience with German Development Association, GIZ, supporting a review of national parks, management of the Philippines, and the Desertec Foundation. He holds degrees with distinction from University College Maastricht and IIIEE Lund University. Welcome to Where Ideas Launch, Tillman. Thank you, Catherine. Great to be here. Great to have you. So tell us a little bit about Systemic and what you guys are doing to help us redesign and decarbonize. Yeah, so Systemic um, was founded five years ago after the Paris Accords by, by the then leaders of the sustainability branch of McKinsey, um, Jeremy Oppenheim and Martin Stuchter. And the, the uh, original mission and still is, it's really to double down on environmental sustainability, um, basically across the board, right? So we, we look really at, at high impact stuff. Um, across natural systems, the rainforest uh, regeneration, for example, on, on materials management, so there'll be that circular economy um, through, through plastics recycling or, or sustainable battery value chains in the mobility system um, and in the energy system as well, where we, where we run especially work on um, harder to abate sectors. So that is, uh, you know, the, the foundational industries of our economy, like chemicals, steel, concrete, aviation, shipping, the stuff that is very hard to get decarbonized and more sustainable. And that's what, what Systemic's mission is. We work um, globally. We, we're now 300 people since, since we started 2015, 16. Um, and we work with you know, governments, top corporates, innovators, banks, um, and you know, large organizations like the WWF or the World Economic Forum to make that happen. Um, yeah, and uh, that's, that's what we do. Um, we try to take a systems angle, so not only advising one company, but we, we, uh, when we advise, work with companies, we want to look at how can they be part of a future better system. Um, so the system is our client, if you will. Um, and then we run a lot of consortia and analytics to underpin these consortia. And then that is what where we think we, our USP lies, where you know, putting the right players and the right brains together to really put the um, accelerate the decarbonization fundamentally. How did you come to work in sustainability? And was it always in your role since you started working? Yeah, so I mean, ever since starting studies, basically, I had the, the goal to look at the large challenge large challenges of our time and um, decarbonization or climate climate change and the loss of biodiversity they, they appear to me like the big existential crises of humanity and so I was you know with with the, all the modesty of a young student went right into that um, and and the way that I that, that what caught my attention in the beginning and what brought me on my path that I'm on now is 
Um, I read an amazing book by the founders of the Rocky Mountain Institute, um, which is called uh, Natural Capitalism, which is all about if you look at systems from a fundamental angle, like go back to the physical principles, go back to like a proper deep dive refurbishment of the system, um, you can you can make uh, dramatic improvements with actually cost savings. You know, there's when I started, there was this belief that. Um, sustainability is always more expensive, right? It's a trade-off to our wealth, to our well-being. Um, and that book basically just says, no, that's, that's just not true, right? If you do it right, uh, actually things improve dramatically in all directions, including for economics and for social welfare. And um, the more I'm in this, uh, this space, the more uh, you know, we find it's true, right? Like nowadays, electric cars are cheaper over their lifetime than conventional. Renewables are cheaper than fossil in almost every place in the world. Um, and so um, this is what kind of excites me, yeah, and which has, has brought me uh, along over the years. It's like way over a decade now. And yeah, so it was always in sustainability that I worked. Um, and I think it's, it's a great, great path now, right? And a great journey because it's really ex accelerating all around where you start looking. Yeah, I don't know if it's accelerating enough, but it is definitely good news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for several years, you worked with EY in sustainability and auditing. What is the role of reporting to improve the whole corporate sustainability performance in your view? Um, so it's kind of two-sided. For one, I think it's important to, you know, coming back to this, this uh, adage that you, what you can't measure, you can't manage. I mean, that's the foundation that... Of course, you need data, you need the transparency about what happens in industry, what happens in companies' actions. And so uh, corporate reporting uh, on, on ESG topics is super important, like reporting on their financial matters is super important. So like, you know, you can invest into them and have transparency and, and can make investment decisions. The same for all sustainability topics. Um, and equally, like the data that you see or the info that you get from corporates um, in their sustainability reports, for example, they um, we need to be looking out carefully for what's audited and what isn't, right? And I think that's, for me, the key takeaway from my time at UI. Auditing um, is so crucial so you can trust the data that you get, right? At the same time, the ESG reports, you know, they often, they came from ESG papers from kind of marketing. Um, and so they aren't a reflection of the strategy of the company, right? So we need to also like uh, be careful on how to interpret them. And exactly, it's what you read is what you get, but it doesn't change the impact of the company fundamentally, right? So there's a limit to what you get out of it. Um, and uh, it doesn't reflect the relative size of the impact to the problem, right? Like if X amount of CO2 is emitted by a company, what does that mean? It doesn't give you a rating like a framing of it and so what you need to do is using that data you need to go really and question the strategies and the, the business models fundamentally uh, like an oil company can never be fully sustainable like inherently and so going back and going to the fundamentals goes way beyond reporting and that's where i'm so excited to work at systemic where you know we we use reporting but we go through and beyond it uh, to help these companies uh, improve more and more fundamentally so you also worked for Volkswagen. Can mm -hmm. you share your thoughts on how that company has recovered from the diesel scandal and how it performs now in terms of facing climate targets? Yeah, when I was at, at Volkswagen, it was in uh, 2012 and 14 for say, one and a half years or so. It was an interesting timing because it was around the time of the IPO of Tesla. Yeah? And back in the day when I talked about Tesla and electric mobility, even with that 
relatively senior management, it was all, well, yeah, I mean, they refurbish these, you know, small convertibles, but it's not, you could never scale this. This is not for volume, you know, who cares, basically. And I mean, of course, many people had realized that it's fundamentally long and it's the way to go, but they didn't see a path for a volume manufacturer of, of autos to actually go there. Um, and so this has changed so fundamentally. And so the diesel crisis in 2015, I think, was a catalytic event in a way, right? Because for one, um, Volkswagen was was um, sentenced in the US, for example, to invest heavily into electric charging infrastructure, which is now coming back as a boon to them where they're rolling out electric cars, right? Because now there's chargers where you can actually use them. <laughs> um, and so uh, for one, I think it, it helped tilt the perspective and also of course unveil the the corruption that had happened yeah and um i mean I'm, i don't want to talk more about that i mean it's all in the press and all that but um what what's the the fact is that volkswagen right now is the largest investor in electric mobility globally um it's like i think half or something of all the investments that go in it's like way beyond 100 billion euros that they invest in electric and smart mobility and so that's a huge huge drive and so after tesla they're probably runner-up in that transition and of course being this huge huge uh, corporate they have a huge leverage also right and so that that strategy i think right now is probably the most ambitious in the entire old automotive industry which is very applaudable um it's going to be hard one but i think it's it's quite amazing what they do and they have a very good comprehensive view um and so it's it's good to see that you know even large um, incumbent companies can turn around and become really front runners in these kind of topics. Yeah, no, that's that's a positive story, and I think I had not realized how big they were in that space at this moment. So thank you for sharing that. Sustainability by nature is complex, and there are many angles to examine before we can rate something as sustainable. And for example, there has been a report showing that shared micromobility solutions are not nearly as sustainable as we think. So can you share why that is and what can we do? Yeah, that, that is a is a tricky topic, right? I mean, on the one hand, I'm I'm all for moving away from like a pure car-based mobility system. I mean, it's quite well known, right, that that cars have I mean combustion cars particularly have a terrible environmental footprint, not only in the CO2, right? But I mean also it's just a really waste of space in a, in a crowded city right and and, and then you move around like several tons of of material to generally just move one person on average yeah um that said i mean we're gonna always use uh cars to an extent right and so electrifying and i think that's to start off with like moving to electric cars is so so important it must happen very very fast yeah they're, they're a lot better and the only decarbonization option really on in the mobility system that we have so that said, like for cities, cars aren't really in most cities not not really the optimal solution, right? And so, how to to have an alternative is, of course, other modes of transport, like the so-called modal shift, moving away from cars to other modes. And um, public transport is um, is something that is very institutional and takes a long time to plan, to build, to operate. It's, it also tends to have to be subsidized, and um, and so there's always going to be gaps um, that can't be filled with conventional, traditional public transit. And so there is this hope that micro mobility, like these scooters, um, and and scooter shares and rentals, can fill that gap, and so therefore help people move away from cars to other modes, yeah, and get around cities without that. And so that's great. The challenge is 
empirically, it, that's not really what happens. But these scooters and micromobility options that tend to be used by people that don't have a car anyway and would have taken a tram or something. Um, and so it's not really shifting. You know? it's, it's just changing from a non-car mode to another uh, mode. And that becomes problematic because um, these micro scooters, I mean, they've not been around for very long. Um, and they don't, you know, they're not perfect products. Yeah. So they don't last very long. Um, and I think one data point that I read from, from one of the large consultancies was that these, these kick scooters, they last on average two to three months. And so that's two months and then you scrap them. And so you have a few kilometers that you take and then you scrap them. And so that's a lot of battery materials, a lot of steel that you just like, they don't have a lot of use for a long time. And so all that footprint that you had in production is just wasted after a very short time. So that is bad. Secondly, to uh, put them in the city, you know, these offers, these, these suppliers, they need to drive around and basically relocate them, right? And sometimes you see them with a van coming, picking them up and charging them and putting them back out. And these vans, they run on diesel and you need quite a lot of these to drive around. And so right now, because they are not electrified, there's actually a massive CO2 footprint attached to these just from making the system work. And so it's going to take a while until they improve and, and actually become a sustainable, quote unquote, um, mobility option. I, I want to challenge you in something. Uh -huh. so, yeah, so please, you said, please <laughs> You said that we, we're going to use cars. We have to use cars. We have to move to electric cars. But do we really need cars? <laughs> Very good. Um, depends on the location where, where you're at, right? Um, right now, 70% of people in Europe live in cities. If you've tried to look at the definition of a city, it's very tricky. Like what constitutes a city? Um, because it's basically always just also a matter of local demarcation. Yeah, like how, what is a city boundary? There's various, like a city can just draw a boundary wherever they want, you know, historically. And so that could be that, you know, a city contains regions where there's really just, you know, the, the odd dispersed house somewhere where it's really far distances where you don't have a good bus connection, where you don't have a tram, let alone a metro, um, where, where really other options, but, um, but individual mobility don't work. Yeah? Um, and then, of course, if you have, say, I want to I live in a city flat and I would generally bike everywhere, but if I need to go to uh, like, like Ikea or whatever and buy a bookshelf, I, you know, I do need a car. I can't put that on my bike. So there will have to be cars. Of course, we will have in cities and urban centers, particularly right now, our use of cars in the Western world is obscene and like providing mobility in, in other parts of the world, like say India or, or capital cities in, in African, in many African countries would just not be feasible. You know, the amount of people putting them in cars, like you would probably ten, grow the city tenfold. So that wouldn't work. So yeah, we can use a lot of a lot fewer cars um, in many many uh, locations and the great thing is e the eu has just passed a, a package a legislative package where they will ask the top 450 cities in the eu to create sustainable urban mobility plans so basically plans how they can improve their mobility so everybody will have to reflect okay can't we you know improve road infrastructure bike infrastructure trams and you know improve their options to move away that said we will still have cars all over the place ultimately for in the long run so yeah electrification is priority number one because you know it happens now but ultimately it's you know i think president obama said it former president obama is like you know it's an 
all of the above option. Like, yeah, we need to do everything at the same time. So that's not an either or. <laughs> so I interviewed Yanis Potoshnik uh, early yeah. in this podcast. And one of the things he was talking about is that the minute you purchase a car, you have already spent, I don't know, roughly two thirds of the carbon outlay just by purchasing it because of the resources it takes to make it. Now, yeah. I know electric cars will be slightly different because they're probably made in electric factories. Um, so it's a little bit little bit less in terms of the carbon wear, but it's still extraction of resource. And that's still a problem. I guess why I'm pushing this is that it's really about we should be embracing what's happened with the pandemic and really encouraging less people going to work which mm. is already creating a big savings in terms I mean I've used my car probably <laughs> I don't know 12 times for the year 2021 I don't know like uh-huh. it's not uh-huh. been a lot right and and I think that there's a real argument here for us to make our next transition one that is you know really using more public transport it could include things like Ubers right because they're just as efficient or, you know, other providers. It's just as efficient as having your own car because you get them within two minutes. They take you where you want to go. You potentially have the entire car for yourself. Um, and it's it's a solution that means that the car isn't parked up, you know, just sitting around waiting for you, right? Which is mm-hmm. one of the biggest problems that, that we have. So that's why I'm pushing it. I, I mean, what are your thoughts? <laughs> um, yeah, as you know, I, I, I work closely with with Janesh and I'm uh, all behind the analyses and messages of the UN International Resource Panel, right? Like half of global CO2 emissions come from extraction and manufacturing of materials and 90% of the biodiversity impact. It's like immensely important that we lower our resource consumption, right? And it doesn't matter if we decarbonize or not, we need to go down with our consumption. So yeah, 100%. And there's also a great opportunity in reducing our travel through, I mean, you know, we're on a, what is it, Zoom call now. And I mean, that the, the work world has changed fundamentally and, you know, permanently. Because three years ago, barely a company was using Zoom and had all these hassles, who was allowed to use what and all that. Um, and that's changed and it's, it's f- here for good. Yeah. And, and so we don't need to travel quite as much anymore. We won't have to fly to, to work with clients so much anymore. And I mean, Systemic has been operating virtually for, for the pandemic, of course, as so many have, and it's been going great. We do need more people contact, right? I mean, mentally, like for, our, for our mental well-being. And that's a huge, huge challenge everybody's having. And so we all have to see each other a little bit more, right? Again, but... Of course, it's, it's a good change to travel less. That said, there's these fun rebounds like, well, then now we're all sitting at home, right? And so basically in the long run, we'll all need another room additionally in our flats to have home office, right? And then you have kids maybe, and your partner is also working. So you need larger flats. So how do you do that? Um, and then like, is that really more sustainable? Like, you know, looking at, you need to be somewhere, you need to heat your place and you have lighting and heating. And I don't know, for, for myself, my heating bill has gone up by a third just because I'm so much at home. Um, and so I don't know whether that is in the long run really more sustainable that, you know, it's going to be have to be analyzed. But that said, um, it's, it's great to have more, better utilization of spaces and of offices and of vehicles. Um, and we definitely need to go there, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, what we can do is instead of working wherever your office is, you go down to the neighborhood office that's now vacant mm. <laughs> and you use that as a co-working space. But I'm going to let you off the hook on this one. I know I know that <laughs> I know that it needs a lot more analysis than we have time to do on this podcast. But, but I lo- by the way, on that point, let me just jump in. I love that idea, Catherine, like the decentralized, you know, co- co-working spaces. And we have a bunch of colleagues that do this, you know, that, that work in, in them permanently. And, you know, we just meet occasionally. It's great to decentralize it that way. Yeah, very good. It's great solutions that I think we need to be thinking more broadly about. But mm-hmm. as you say, you, you guys are the ones doing the analytics. So looking forward to, <laughs> to hearing your summaries. Mm-hmm. So what are the current projects you're working on and what impact are they likely to have on decarbonization this, this year, 2022? Yeah, so one of the large ones, that, that we are currently developing and that will go live in April, um, hopefully, is um, the battery passport. That's something that the EU has, has put in a regulation um, last year that every battery, every large battery, so not the, you know, the mobile phone batteries, but like start storage batteries and car batteries that come onto the market starting 2026 will have to have a battery passport, basically a little database um, that you could access online that tells you, the, so the consumer, but also B2B manufacturers and the government, what's the CO2 footprint? Where is the material from? So is there like critical cobalt in it, for example? What share of it is recycled? Um, what chemicals are in there so you can recycle them better? What's the state of health of the battery so you can you know, use it for a second life application, for example, after it's not good enough for the car anymore. So very important information for both business and sustainability. Um, the thing is, it doesn't exist yet. Yeah. And so the question is which data, in what form, how do you get it there? So there's a lot of questions that still need to be debated by industry and by politics, technically, but also content-wise. And so we, we've put together a consortium of like a dozen leading automotive companies, material companies, and science institutes with the Fraunhofer Institute, like top researchers and the World Economic Forum to answer some of these questions and, and uh, contribute to that. That's one of the big projects that we're starting. But we're also working with the World Economic Forum on a study on circular economy policy between EU and China that's going to come out mid-year and, uh, and hopefully start a great discussion. And working with a bunch of corporates also on, um, on yeah, taking their perspective on living in that future urban mobility uh, world and, and improving their full life cycle impact. So it's going to be a very, very, very exciting year. And uh, we're, yeah, we're, we're growing very fast. We're doubling our team this year. So um, looking forward to applications as well. We're looking for colleagues. Right. I'm going to talk to you about that as soon as we finish this recording. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on how the battery materials and rare crisis can be resolved? Because I think that this is the growing concern. Yeah. No, and, and thanks for, for pointing that out, right? Because it, it is definitely. And to be honest, it's, it's a matter that isn't only relevant to electric cars, but to the whole uh, decarbonization well, pathway overall, right? I mean, if you move from coal power plants to, uh, to distributed solar, for example, we need a lot more uh, IT infrastructure, a lot more uh, electric motors, a lot more chips everywhere. And so that's where the, the errors come in, right? And just, just for the foundations, right? it's often misconceived that electric cars have rare earths and the batteries have rare earths in them. It's not really the case. Like rare earths are in, in electronics and in electric motors. Yeah? And so they're, um, they're, they're like in, in very small um, amounts. You have them and they're very crucial. In batteries, you have cobalt, nickel, lithium, manganese sometimes, depends on the chemistry. 
And these are none of these is rare. So like also chemically, they're not part of the rare earth group, but they're also not chemically rare. The challenge is that they have sustainability issues and they're not, there's not enough around right now. No? And cobalt infamously comes a lot from Congo and there's uh, child labor and human rights concerns. Lithium comes partly from, from Southern America with um, concerns about water use. Um, and nickel is, is really expanding, for example, in Indonesia, where there's some, some impacts on uh, or dramatic impacts on rainforests and oceans. And so that needs to be fixed. Thing is, right now, we, we like the, the, what we're looking at right now, the batteries right now, they're basically what engines were like 80, 90, 100 years ago. Yeah, so they're very primitive, if you will. Um, and right now, the innovation is so, so fast that every like three months, there's new announcements of new chemicals, new, new ways of manufacturing, and that we need less and less material to get the same performance. And, um, and it's, they're getting less and less harmful. And uh, so, for example, Tesla has announced that for their big like module, model three, their, their volume model, um, they're moving to um, lithium iron phosphate batteries altogether. And that's important because... We talk about cobalt and nickel as a, the key problem materials. Well, you know, Tesla's already moving away from them. Half of the batteries in the cars in China this year already, like 2021, were already lithium iron phosphate batteries that don't have any cobalt and nickel in them. Yeah, So that's a challenge that is real, but it's also that's, for one, not limited to cars, and for another, not going to be a problem for cars predominantly in the long run. Yeah, And so... Um, it shouldn't be something that blocks this innovation. It's something that we should manage as good as we can. Um, but uh, in the medium term, you know, clean that up and, and limit it and, and recycle everything that we have. But it's not a fundamental challenge to electrifying cars. Yeah? So that's very important to keep in mind. For someone interested in a Korean sustainability, what advice would you give them? Hmm. That is a great question. And uh, to be honest, I... I've uh, looked back many times or, or now looking forward also, what could I do? What can I do? Where can I apply myself? Right? The thing is, at least since 2018 with the, with the new IPCC report on the 1.5 degree goal, I think everybody's realized, okay, climate change is real. It's happening. We need to act like super fast. I also mentioned technology has changed so much, like you know, solar is now cheaper and fossil electric cars are basically uh, in two or three years time if you can't buy an electric car that's your problem but um you want to buy one right this is we're here yeah so now it's shifted right in the past it was a lot about convincing people that we need to act then it was a lot about okay uh convincing people that it is possible to act now it's really a question of okay getting it done and so if you want to move into sustainability well, yeah, definitely educate, take a systems perspective and, you know, ask twice, like what rebound effects, what's the complex value chain behind things, um, who really has the power to change the system fundamentally? Is it me eating a little bit less meat or, or using a bit less plastics bags? Or is it really, you know, the heating system where I don't have an impact on like half of our emissions are basically from heating and lighting our homes. So whether I use a plastic bag or not in the grand scheme of things is really not important sorry to say um so like learning to look through what is really the big challenges and then actually you know learn the skills that you need to grow businesses to legislate to um contact and, and reach out to people to communicate like basically business skills normal skills like um to change stuff you need to have the skills to change stuff not to to be smart on sustainability so i think that's that's changed, yeah. And so going to a strategic consultancy, to um, um, to a bank, to an investor, um, into politics, 
that's all opportunities to make a change wherever in whichever position you are. No, that's great. How can my listeners get involved and support your work as well as possibly join Systemic? Yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're, our goal this year is to grow by 50% from 300 to uh, over 400. And um, in all our locations, that's London, Amsterdam, Paris, Brussels, Jakarta, Sao Paulo, Paris. Um, so yeah, please do apply, reach out. I mean, through, through LinkedIn, right? We're easy to find. Um, uh, happy also to take PMs there. But um, looking at our website, I think people will find a lot of interesting projects. So that's uh, systemic.earth um, and, and have a look there. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Well, thank you, Catherine, for having me. Season four of Where Radio's Launch was brought to you today by Catherine Ann Byam, Business Resilience and Strategy Consulting Services. Catherine provides business assessments and strategic support to help guide your business toward a net zero future. Get in touch with Catherine Ann Byam on LinkedIn.